Well, good morning, Marcel. You may be seated. So good to see you all. How are you? All right. <laughs> well, hear this. If you're good or not, <laughs> encouraged or discouraged, you are a chosen race. By faith in Christ, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, not your own, his. You belong to him. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. That is true of you by faith in the Lord Jesus alone. And with that truth resonating in our heart. How are you doing this morning, Marcel? Good, all right, good. Well, last week we saw for the first time an interesting problem in the life of the early church in the book of Acts. They faced a dilemma, one that threatened their unity and their growth, which was this, widows weren't being fed. That's a problem in and of itself, but it's even worse when you think about it because it wasn't all widows, it was just a specific group of widows, those being the Hellenistic widows. If you remember what that fancy word means, it comes from the Greek word for Greek, <laughs> meaning Greek. So there were Greek-speaking widows who had lost their husbands. And at that time, and at that culture, if you were beyond childbearing years and you had lost your husband, you were pretty much on your own. So they had entrusted themselves, not to the state, but to the church, and the church was failing. They weren't giving the Hellenistic widows the daily allotment of food. And when the problem was brought before the apostles, even though they may have wanted to serve these women, to emulate the Lord Jesus, whom they saw serve 5,000 miraculously and washed their feet the night before his crucifixion, even if they wanted to, they couldn't. They rightly recognized that they were limited. They couldn't preach and pray, devote themselves to those two things, and provide for the widows all at the same time. And so, instead of reading the text like they're saying, well, we have better things to do, like preaching, you go feed the women, no. They said, we are limited and frail men. We cannot do everything, we need help. And so he asked the church, could you please bring before us men who are qualified to serve widows? The qualifications were this, that you had to be filled with the Holy Spirit and you had to have a good reputation among outsiders, which tells us that the most quality people in the ministry are not the most credentialed, the ones with degrees on their walls, but those who have the greatest and most Christ-like character and humility filled with the Holy Spirit. One of these men happened to be a guy by the name of Stephen. Now, Stephen's story is what's going to unfold over the course of today and next Sunday. And I don't wanna bury the lead. If you're unfamiliar with this story, Stephen becomes the first martyr in the history of Christianity after Jesus, of course. He will be stoned to death at the end of next week's passage. In fact, what's interesting about Stephen's name, which suggests that maybe he was named after his death, is that the same word in Revelation that's used to describe when the saints receive crowns, those saints that had been martyred or killed, that word for crown is Stephanon. There's a relationship between Stephen's name and the crown that martyrs get in the end. Well, who is Stephen? Why is Luke bringing him up here and now? And what are the events that led to Stephen's martyrdom? That's 
what we're going to learn about today. Acts chapter 6, verses 7 through 8. Let's begin with 7 through 8. And the word of God continued to increase. So what we're seeing here is the transition from the apostles distributing out uh, authority through deacons to serve the widows. And now that they're fed, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied. So as the word of God increases, so did the number of disciples of Jerusalem. And check this out, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So this is not just Hellenistic widows. This is not just Jewish fishermen. These are guys that are a part of the temple system are becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So if there's any doubt whether or not the church had brought forward a qualified candidate, there's any doubt that the apostles were right in ordaining this man, there's any doubt about God's calling of Stephen to ministry, those are all gone now. Not only is he serving widows, but he's also preaching. And not only is he preaching, but he was doing great wonders and signs. What Luke is telling us here is that it is unmistakable that God is working through Stephen. The word of God is prospering. The early church is flourishing, which led to this dramatic increase in growth in both numbers and we could say spiritual maturity. And it's prospering so much so that the temple priests were converting. I think we need to understand a little bit about how the temple system worked at this time to really feel how shocking that would have been. The way it worked was like this. If you went to the temple, there was one guy in charge. That man, that man was the high priest. And the high priest supervised this group of men called the Levites from the tribe of Levi. If you remember in the Old Testament, when the 12 tribes of Israel were rescued from Egypt, God allotted them all land except for one tribe, which was the tribe of Levi. And those men were dedicated to the worship of God on behalf of the nation. So they didn't get land, but they did get the privilege of supervising temple sacrifices and worship in the tabernacle and eventually the temple. Underneath those Levites during the time of the Acts were temple workers or temple priests. Now, these were men from all other tribes of Israel all throughout the world who had sacrificed time and money to go to Jerusalem for a season to assist the Levites who were serving the high priest. So these are guys that had regular day jobs that could have lived miles and miles and miles away from Jerusalem, but have come temporarily to serve a short assignment and then they would go back home. Those are the guys that are leaving to convert to Jesus. So you can imagine this scenario and why the temple people might've been a little bit upset. Imagine for a moment, you're the high priest and you walk in, it's Tuesday, you're already two days into the week. You're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, we're behind on sacrifices, what's going on? So you call in your Levites and you're like, why are we behind on temple sacrifices? God's gonna be really upset with us. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And the Levites are like, we can't because we're losing our priests. And the high priest is like, well, where are the priests going? And the Levites look down, put their hands in their pocket, and they're like, about that. You know those fishermen that said uh, the rabbi we killed rose from the dead? The priests are hanging out with those guys now. So the temple leadership are getting pretty upset. They're getting flustered. They're getting frustrated. And as we watch all throughout Acts, the pressure is going to increase and increase and increase. 
But what we're really meant to see here with that radical revelation that even temple priests are converting is not that the conversion is happening, but how and why the conversion is happening. The conversion is happening, we've already read, because the word of God continued to go forth. And Luke is drawing our attention, not so much to the great signs and wonders that Stephen's performing, but to the mighty power of God's word. Why is the church growing in Jerusalem? Because God's word, like him, is unchanging. Psalm 119, 89 says, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. They're being drawn to an unchanging message by an unchanging God. The word of God, like him, is unending. Isaiah 40, verse eight, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God, the word of our God will stand forever. God's word like him is unbreakable. Jesus says in John chapter 10, 35, scripture cannot be broken. God's word is how he saves people. Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. God's word is not just how he saves people, it's also how he sanctifies people or makes them holy. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, 17, sanctify them, the disciples, in truth. Your word is truth. And this is because God's word points to the capital W word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a story about him, our savior and redeemer, who in the beginning was the word, as the word was with God and the word was God, and the word tabernacled or dwelt among us, John says in the first chapter of his gospel. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth, and have written and testified about him in this book. Jesus Christ, the word of God, promised to build up his church. Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you're Peter and on this rock, I, Jesus speaking, will build my church. This church, all other churches are not ours. They don't belong to us. They belong to Jesus and he promised to build them up. So Luke's drawing our attention. Why is the church being built up even with all this opposition, even with all these threats of disunity, even though it's not perfect? It's not because of the church. It's because the unchanging, unending, unbreakable power of salvation and sanctification is being proclaimed. The message about the Lord Jesus who causes his people to flourish in grace and truth. It's a powerful thing. One of my favorite conversion stories in all of church history is by a guy that Dawson mentioned earlier in worship, Augustine of Hippo. Augustine was like many, if not most people in the world. He was miserable. He was trying to find happiness in the world. He was lonely. He was trying to find fullness in relationships. He was bored. He was trying to find adventure in celebrity. But no matter how hard his restless heart searched in the world for happiness and fullness and joy, he couldn't find it. And he grew weary and tired in his sin. Anybody ever been there? And at a particularly low moment in his life, he happened to be sitting next to a book, the Bible, and he heard a voice calling to him from every direction 
nowhere in specific that said in Latin, tole, lege, which means pick it up and read. And so he picked it up and he read a portion of the book of Romans and was converted instantly. That's the power of the word of God. And so are you today searching for something unchanging in our dynamic, ever-changing, always spinning, never ceasing, hectic and chaotic world? Pick it up and read. You'll find an unchanging God there. And are you looking for something unending, eternal, forever, in a life of impermanence and sad endings and dead ends and permanent goodbyes? Pick it up and read. You'll find an unending God there. Do you need something unbreakable in this fragile world where friendships and marriages and hearts and minds seem so fragile and thin? Pick it up and read. Do you want to hear from God? One of the main things I get as a pastor is people come to me and they say, I don't hear from God. I feel like I'm distant from God. I don't feel like I know God. God is speaking to you in his living and active word. Pick it up and read. Are you exhausted from sin and spinning your wheels in shame? Pick it up and read. Hebrews 4, 12 reminds us that the word of God is living. And it's not just living, it's active. Living is speaking about what its status is. Active is speaking about what it can do. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit. Do you even know the difference between the soul and the spirit? But the word of God is so precise that it can slice through those two, through joints and marrow and discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, which in combination is truly who you are as a human being. It knows you better than you do. And so for these reasons, reading the word, we receive the gospel, the precious message that Stephen and the apostles were preaching. And there we find an unchanging, unbreakable, merciful God who gives us every desire of the heart that we never thought we wanted. But don't be surprised though, when the two-edged sword that cut through your heart to make room for the gospel, and you speak it to your friends or family or in public, it doesn't cut through hearts of stone. That you take the same two-edged sword and find that when it comes to a heart of stone, it nicks it and agitates it and frustrates it and you find yourself on the opposite end of opposition and someone rejecting the message that you so dearly hold. As Stephen's story continues, that's exactly what we begin to see in verses nine through 10, chapter six. Then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen but they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Okay, who are, who are the freedmen? That sounds like a family, like the freedmen's. Everybody knows the freedmen's, right? And why do they get their own synagogue? <laughs> freedmen uh, are exactly what they sound like they were. Freed, past tense, men. In other words, they were formerly slaves or they were descendants, children of slaves who somehow got their citizenship in Rome. 
So they went from slavery to what was then called the status of uh, libertani, liberated. These folks were very pro-Jewish. As a religion, they were very pro-law. They were very pro-temple because they spent their whole lives underneath Gentile pagan lordship. And so when they're finally able to do what they want, what they want is more of what they missed out in their years of slavery. And so they relocated their families from all over the empire. I have a map here. The known empire, or the, the, approximately the Roman empire at the time. And they came from four locations, essentially, Luke says. And he's intentional about the four locations that they came from. Two of them came from uh, Cyrene, in the province of Asia, and you notice that those are in pink. Pink means they're senatorial, which means they're rich. Like that's where Silicon Valley is back then, right? Uh, that's Martha's Vineyard. You can see it off the coast of Greece there. And then the other two came from Cilicia and Alexandria, which are in imperial provinces. These are not as wealthy. What's interesting though, is he mentioned Cilicia. And if you don't know that, that's okay, but we're gonna get to know it. Cilicia is this uh, province in the upper right-hand side. Yep. Today, it's where Southern Turkey meets Syria. And this is gonna be important to us later because there was a young up-and-coming phenom of a Jewish leader that came from Cilicia. Here's how he described himself. We actually have a little bit of an autobiography. So we know exactly what he thought of himself at this time. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to a Pharisee, uh, a, a Pharisee, as to, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Who is he? Yep. We're gonna meet him very shortly. In fact, as we're reading this text in chapter six, very likely, he is right there watching all of this go down. So, for some reason, the Hellenistic Jews from those four areas confront Stephen. And I wanna empathize a little bit with them because one of the exercises I like to do when I read the Bible is when somebody's a bad guy, I don't go, huh, I'd never do that. When I see somebody's a bad guy in an area, I go, that's exactly what I would have done. So why? Why would I have done that? I wanna put myself in their shoes. And I think this is why. Can you imagine being a Jew, living in Libya, and you spent five, 10, 15 years under slavery of a pagan Roman Lord who knows you're a Jew and rubs it in because he's assigned you to care for his pigs, which makes you ceremonially unclean year after year after year. And finally, you pay your debt off to that monster and you're free. Where do you want to go now? Straight to Jerusalem. And so you go straight to Jerusalem and you go head in to the law because you've been unclean before Yahweh year after year after year. And you want to make yourself clean in front of him so that you could repatriate yourself into his covenant community or so you think. And then here comes these people who are supposed to be on your side preaching this message that you think is gonna infuriate Yahweh and bring judgment on Jerusalem. They're in your Zion. 
They're in your backyard. And the last thing you wanna do is to make Yahweh mad to have Jerusalem conquered and to go back into slavery. Can you empathize a little bit with why they were frustrated with Stephen? They're wrong, but we can at least understand why they confront him. So they attempt to argue with him, but it's not gonna work because you can argue with Christians, you can't argue with the gospel. It's just not going to work. They couldn't match the wisdom and spirit, not of Stephen, but of God. Anyone can match the wisdom and spirit of Stephen, but it's the wisdom and spirit that the Holy Spirit gives to Stephen that can't be matched. So a question arises, why is Luke telling us about this confrontation with them now? Well, he doesn't actually say. He only says that they rose up and disputed, which means the reason is less relevant than the reality that it happened. And I think this is the lesson we're supposed to walk away with because it's the one we're going to consider over the next two weeks that people who are hardened to the gospel oppose those who herald it. People who are hardened to the gospel, even if you can empathize with them, even if you can walk a mile in their shoes, even if you understand where they're coming from, people who are hardened to the gospel will oppose those who herald it. And that's the big idea in Stephen's story here, especially as it continues to unfold. We read in verse 11, we'll go through 14. Then they, the freedmen and the other Hellenistic Jews, they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him, Stephen, and seized him and brought him before the council. It's not the first time that's happened, is it? Peter and James had already been arrested once before. Verse 13, and they set up false witness, false witnesses. Now that's unique. Peter and James didn't have false witnesses set up against them, but Stephen does. So we can see the hostility rising and rising and rising as we move in, in the narrative. For, uh, they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, meaning the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Okay, a couple things here to notice, two things really. First, Stephen's opposition secretly instigated, it says, fear and anger among the people. And the, the first thing that came to mind was like, how cowardly is that? You, you couldn't, you, you went up to Stephen first, you tried to argue with him, you failed. And so you went the coward's route of pulling people aside in alleys after the sun went down and whispered in their ears lies rather than, get this, Praise God for feeding the widows you're supposed to be feeding. They're Hellenistic Jewish men and their widows were starving at the beginning of the chapter. So instead of looking at what the church was doing and praising God that their women were being taken care of, they're gonna go after the guy that's in charge of caring for those widows. That is cowardice, cowardice. And the term here the instigate in private. It means they, they pulled others aside, whispering half-truths. And then, and then what they did is they kind of like sunk into the shadows and stood back and watched like puppet masters as uh, anger and fear fomented among, there's, there's three types of people here, regular folks, religious leaders, and scholars. Who is immune from that kind of manipulation? Regular folks, religious scholars, the temple workers, nobody. Nobody's immune. They were all stirred up. And apparently, um, these, these guys had two goals in mind. 
The first goal was to make everybody angry, and the second goal was to make everybody afraid. And, and I know that because they said that Stephen was doing two things wrong. Thing number one is he was speaking blasphemous words against Moses. That's a shortcut for saying he's speaking bad against Judaism as we're practicing it today. He's speaking bad against our history. He's speaking bad against our culture. He's speaking bad against our religious beliefs. He's talking trash about our way of life. Nobody likes to hear that, right? Nobody likes to be a part of a culture and then have somebody like talk it down, right? Anybody ever lived overseas as an American? It's like every single day I gotta hear about (laughs) how backwards Americans are, right? It gets a little bit annoying. And that's essentially what's going on here. Stephen's making people angry. But then, I'm sorry, Stephen's not making people angry. The people in opposition to Stephen are making others angry against him. The second goal they had in mind was to make people afraid. They said that Stephen was speaking blasphemous words against God. And if they're going to ignore Stephen's quote unquote blasphemy, then they're going to incur God's judgment. So they want the people to fear the consequences of allowing Stephen to continue to preach. They want the people angry, They want them afraid. Does this tactic sound familiar? A society angry and afraid being manipulated by half-truths and outright lies. We have different ways of saying this today. Fake news, misinformation, disinformation, all coming to us by doom scrolling. You know what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9? What has been is what will always be. And what has been done is what will always be done. There's nothing new under the sun. So as we continue to navigate in our information-drenched society, I think we need to be wise. Because human beings are easiest to manipulate when they are afraid and angry. If there is a politician or a platform or party or an institution or a celebrity whose content only ever makes you angry or afraid, you might be being manipulated. And it doesn't matter if you agree with what they say, and it doesn't even matter if what they're saying is true. It's the intention behind their communication in their language. If they want you angry and afraid, it's because they want to manipulate them. They want to manipulate you into doing their will. And that's exactly what we're seeing unfold here. The freedmen and these other men want Stephen dead. And the way they go about doing it so that their hands are quote unquote clean, like Pilate washing his hands before the crucifixion, is they're going to stir up people with lies and false accusations about Stephen and let the anger and the fear foment so that their will is executed. Men conspiring against the gospel. We have to be sober-minded about what we hear and how we feel about what we hear. The second thing, though, is that Stephen's opposition bore witness against him. And that led to his personal suffering and is ultimately going to lead to his death. And I think, again, to to try to see it from their perspective, a terrible reading to those that are opposing Stephen here, maybe they just misunderstood what Stephen was saying. 
Maybe, maybe the things that Stephen were saying were incomprehensible to them because they didn't have a compatible worldview with the gospel. Like they literally couldn't understand what he was saying. So no matter what he said, it was like talking to a wall and they, they didn't get it, right? You can imagine them asking like, okay, Stephen, what should like a normal Sunday look like? And he was like, yeah, we're gonna eat Jesus's flesh. And they're like, you're gonna do what? You're cannibals? I'm out of here, Right? But even in Jesus's day, when he had that teaching, if you, don't, if you don't eat my flesh, you have no part in the kingdom. Disciples walked away, except for a handful. And they're like, where, will, where else are we gonna go, right? I would be like, give me five minutes to explain what Jesus means by that. So they're misevangelized. Maybe they're misevangelized, right? I wouldn't say it like that. They reacted negatively to hearing a positive word because they just didn't understand it. Now, there's a lot of those types of people in the world and in our life, and we ought to have immense amounts of charity and sympathy towards them. Here's Paul's advice, I believe, on what to do with opponents or people who are hostile to the gospel because they don't quite understand what's going on, the misevangelized. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. You must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But more likely, Stephen's opponents knew exactly what he was preaching and they chose to lie about him, to silence him. They knew Stephen would never badmouth the temple, as we're gonna see next week. The sum of his argument about the temple is this. I'm not insulting the temple. I'm contextualizing what the temple means now that Jesus Christ has been killed and resurrected three days later. But they didn't wanna hear it. They didn't care. So they lied about Stephen and they bore false witness and they exaggerated their lies more and more. They had like level A and then level B. Level A was this. We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God but that wasn't enough for them. And so they exaggerated to this. This man never ceases to speak against this holy place in the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth is gonna destroy this place, the temple, and it's gonna change our customs that Moses delivered to us. They knew what they're doing because in raising the bar of accusation for blasphemy, you also raise the bar for punishment. It's gone from an offense warranting an arrest. Remember, Peter and James got arrested to now it's an offense that's going to warrant the death penalty according to Jewish law. And the irony here is absolutely palpable. In bearing false witness against Stephen, these men broke the very law they are trying to save. They never saw the irony. The sin they committed to ensure righteousness They think they're the righteous ones, but they're not. Like God's gonna be impressed with their zeal, which he's not because they're stuffing a sock in the mouth of the one that he has put his spirit into to save people. And worse, because of that, they've set into motion the events that are going to be necessary to kill him. So not only have they borne false witness, which is breaking the ninth of the 10th commandments, but they're also going to be uh, culpable of murdering a man. They're breaking two of the 10 commandments and in the kingdom of God, 80% is not good enough. Stephen's opposition thinks to themselves, well, the ends justify the means, but they don't and they never do. And the religious leaders have been in this situation before, haven't they? When they accused Jesus of blasphemy, which led to his execution, they lied and then they murdered. 
and they will face judgment for it. And neither do the ends justify the means for us as well as Christians. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 19, 5, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. And it doesn't even matter if your intentions are good. A false witness is a lie. They're like careless words against the person. And Jesus says this in Mark, or Matthew 12, I tell you on the day judgment, when you, give a, you will give an account for every careless word you speak. For by your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you will be condemned. We'll talk about what kind of words justify us in the end here. But let's look at this lie closer, this, this, what, what made them bear false witness against steam and, and, and then kind of gleam application for ourselves today. The lie was this, the man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law, for we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and will challenge or change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So there's two accusations here. First, that Jesus is gonna blow up the temple. And then second, that Jesus is gonna blow up the laws or change the laws. Both of those are untrue. They're just not true. We know the answer because we heard Jesus' teaching already. Jesus did not say he would destroy the temple. He said they would destroy his temple, referring to his body, and that he would rebuild the temple in three days, meaning God would raise him up from death. So the first accusation is a lie. Second accusation, Jesus said he was gonna change the law. No way. He literally told you he didn't come to change the law. He, didn't, he wasn't gonna change a single yacht or tittle of the law. He didn't come to change the law. He did something better. He came to fulfill the law. So notice that at the end of the day, the critics here are not trying to discredit Stephen. Who are they really trying to discredit? Jesus. They're not trying to discredit Stephen. They're really trying to discredit Jesus because that's the end goal. Not to discredit the Christian, but to discredit Christ. In other words, the world is not after Christ's disciples. The world is after Christ through his disciples. And, and the more you understand that, the easier it is to understand what it means to live as a Christ follower, a saint of God in a fallen world. Jesus talks about this kind of relationship between himself and us in the world quite often. Most famously in John 15, he says in verse 18 and 19, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. When the world, when the enemy, when sin hates a follower of Jesus, it's not necessarily hating you. The world is hating Jesus through you. If you were of the world, Jesus says, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of this world, because I chose you out of this world, you didn't choose me, I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. And elsewhere, as John said, 1 John 3, 13, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So never seek being hate, but never shun it either. Because there's going to be times in life, just like there was for Stephen, where you're going to stand accused of blasphemy, but not blasphemy as it really is, blasphemy against the gods of this world. We are all religious creatures. Even atheists are religious creatures that worship gods. They just happen to be material, naturalistic, uh, secular in the truest sense of that word, gods. 
you will be accused of blasphemy against gods of this world. How dare you suggest that we human beings are not the sum of our sexual identity and experiences? How dare you scandalously declare that there is only one way to salvation? Don't you know how ignorant that sounds? How dare you flagrantly dismiss the powerful politics of my team on the right or on the left by saying that there is a higher purpose and a better way and a more powerful kingdom yet to come? What do you have to say for yourself? The world is going to ask you. And at that moment, we rest in the promises that Jesus gives all of his disciples, Luke 12, 11 through 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, contextualize that for a minute. When they cancel you on virtual platforms, when they parade you in front of a crowd of social mediaites, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you're going to say. Why? Because Jesus promised us in John 14, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells in you, who dwells with you and will be in you. Remember, Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. I have no doubts he's recalling these promises and resting on them and gripping them as tightly as he can because he's not afraid. So what do we have to be afraid of? We are ambassadors, message bringers, not message creators. And God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And when you look at Stephen's example, he's the only one so far that meets the criteria of all three of those things. Stephen is full of grace and power. He's displaying love to the widows and people, and he's self-controlled. We don't hear him in this narrative try to defend himself. He's silent in the accusations. And it's the supposedly freed men who are actually enslaved to sin, doing the will and the bidding of their master. They're the ones who are powerless to withstand the wisdom and spirit of Stephen's message. And they clearly hate Stephen because they're lying about him. And they show no sign of self-control because they're taking aside people and leaders and scholars and slandering Stephen so that they might foment anger and fear. But as for you, Paul tells us, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's our calling in life, to be sober-minded about the world, not to be manipulated by fear or anger, always aware of the darkness in which the light shines, to endure suffering, never to seek it, but always willing to bear it, not in our own power, but by abiding in Christ. Because God has changed us through his message, the gospel. And he's asked us not merely to live it, but to proclaim it as well. What's the falsely attributed saying to Francis of Assisi, uh, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Listen, it's always necessary to use words when preaching the gospel. It's the dumbest thing. Why? Because what does gospel mean? Good news. 
How many of you have ever turned on the news and watched the newscasters? Pantomime, what happened? Can you tell what's going on in the Middle East right now? No. I need to hear you speak. It's the same thing with the gospel. Good news. It's meant to be shared, proclaimed, spoken over. And in those moments, God will gift you with wisdom and his spirit, just like he did with Stephen. And this will be the result. For Stephen, at least, 6, 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What does he mean by that? First time I read it, I thought of like the memes with the biblically accurate angels, like the spheres of like eyeballs. And No, I think that's what's going on. I think this is what's going on. Like Moses' face shined before the people so that they knew without a shadow of a doubt he had been in the presence of God. These men cannot take their eyes off of Stephen because there's something different this time. God is there. And I can't help but stop looking. It's unmistakable. Whatever that guy is about to say is from God. And I have a choice. I can listen or I can reject it. I can receive is what Jude calls the faith that was once delivered for all the saints, or I can reject it. And what happens next is powerful. Stephen's last preached message of the gospel before he looks up and sees the Lord Jesus and is welcomed into his kingdom forever. Until then, what we want to do is to remind ourselves of the message that Stephen was delivering to people that was saving them the gospel, and in doing so, celebrate together as a community of gospel-believing people saved by the gospel in the Lord's Supper. So let's remind ourselves, what is the gospel, the good news? It's this, an amazing story about sin, death, life, and hope, that God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, made us to live together forever with him and each other in perfect love and peace, and harmony, and flourishing, and goodness, and fullness, and meaning, and purpose, but we rejected it. We threw it away, opting for our own plan, and in doing so, we became sinners. We sin because our nature is corrupt. We're not morally neutral blank slates who are affected by a negative surrounding. We have a corrupted, fallen nature in sin because we are sinners. Every unkind and selfish act, every woman you've ever lusted after in your heart, every, every man you've ever murdered in your heart because you've harbored anger against him, even every selfish desire that you've had yet without taking action, you didn't, you didn't act on it. Still, the desire that you had that was wrong, it was bent inward on yourself, away from God and away from love of neighbor. Even that desire demonstrates an absolutely undeniable fact. We are sinners. And not only are we sinners, but in this fallen world, we are sinned against. This is the part of, part of sin I think we overlook or tend to ignore, haven't even been talked about or told about before. We are sinned against because our neighbors are corrupted in their hearts too. So every experience of undue oppression that you have had to endure, every persecution, every injustice, every type of abuse, 
that you thought was going to bring you to your end, every neglect and snide dismissal, every ridicule, that's because your neighbors are sinners and they break you too. Here's the truth. You are a victimizer and a victim simultaneously. It's not one or the other. We're both. And us together, as Augustine describes us, as a mass of, of, uh, of sin, are in rebellion. And humanity rightly re- deserves what is owed to us, the wrath of God. All of us, because Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God. Not just most, not just 99.999% of us, all, every single one of us. We have fallen short to the glory of God. We have become the unglory of God. We have become the dishonor of God and we ought to dwell in oblivion forever, an eternal death that comes through divine wrath, dying without ever ceasing to die in eternity, cut off from love and light and life forever. And here's the thing, there's not a thing you can do about it. Not a single thing. There isn't a good work you can do to make up for your bad ones. There's no making it up to God. There's insufficient time to heal all things. There's nothing you can say to excuse yourself. We are all sinners. We dishonor God. We hate each other. And we are therefore defenseless against the throne of God. Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. That we don't get what we deserve. It's worse than that. We get what we're owed. And even worse than that, we actually get what we want. God will ask every single person on the day of judgment, why did you dishonor me and harm your neighbor? And we're gonna answer this, because I wanted to. And the response will be, very well, not my will, but your will be done unto you. And Jesus describes it like this. They will be cast into outer darkness where there is only ever weeping and gnashing of teeth and incomprehensibly terrifying second death, John says in Revelation 20, verse 14. Friends, I am begging you, do not resist this point. Do not resist this point, especially in our culture and in our day, in 2024, in the direction that the faith is going in this country. Please do not reject or resist this point. It's not a point that I'm making. It's not a point that the church makes. It's one that Jesus made. We are merely messengers whom the message itself applies to. The Lord Jesus himself warned against such hellish eternal states more than any other person in scripture. It's real, it's coming, it's inevitable because God will not abide holiness forever. Well, that's bad news. But that's not what the gospel means, right? Again, what does the gospel mean? Good news. So here comes the good part. Exodus 34, verse six, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, so that even though the wages of sin is death, get this, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That God loves you so much that he offered his son on your behalf to live a perfectly righteous life, the one that you were designed to but could never, free from sin, unsullied in any way, 
absolutely spotless, unblemished, flawless, and beautiful even. And as light stepping into a dark world, he experienced the worst that darkness had to offer, an excruciating, horrendous death, the one that you were destined for. Paul says, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, while we were still sinners, Jesus willingly got up on the cross. Not after you cleaned yourself up, not after you did enough good works, not after you got everything under control and got your house in order. No, while you were still in active rebellion, nailing him to the cross, he willingly remained there on your behalf. It was a death that was free from mercy, a merciless death, shameful in every way. He was completely nude, absolutely blood-soaked, guilt-laden, horrifying. But, and here's one of the greatest paradoxes of the Christian faith, it was also beautiful. Because Christ's sacrifice on the cross paid the penalty of sin. Paul says, for our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Think about every single sin that you've ever committed, that you're presently committing now, or you ever will commit. All of those sins were put on Christ and shoved in the grave and remain there. Heart experiment right now. What's the biggest sinful regret you ever had in your life? Think about it right now. That sin, if you trust in Jesus and receive his lordship, went to hell with him, went to the grave with him, went to Gehenna with him and stayed there when he rose again three days later. It's still there. It's never coming back because Jesus Three days later, literally, bodily, materially, actually, not allegorically, not metaphorically, but for real, rose from death. Because if he didn't, then that sin that you just thought about that was in the grave did not stay there. And you still owe God. And if the resurrection is not real, then neither is our justification before God. Because Paul said Christ who was delivered up for our trespasses was also raised for our justification. If Christ was not raised, then neither are we justified. So let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's what Paul says. But because he is risen by faith alone in Christ alone, without your works or actions or words or wisdom, and check this out, even without your affections or your desires, it's by faith alone, just simple childlike trust By that alone in Christ's righteousness and his sacrifice, trust in his exchange of his righteousness for your unrighteousness, you not only receive forgiveness, but also eternal life and are hidden in Christ before the throne room of God. So that as Noah, who was tucked up in the ark and tossed around by the storm of destruction yet never consumed, so will we, hidden and tucked in Christ, endure God's judgment, never consumed, but purified to glory. So when God asks, which he will, why did you dishonor me and harm other people? Your answer will be, because I wanted to, but... God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I plead guilty as charged of my own crimes, but innocent because Jesus Christ alone is Lord and I believe he took my punishment and my sin to the grave with him and resurrected with none of it. 
Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Paul says, you might be saved. You, let's see what happens on the day of judgment. You, if you do your part, Jesus makes up the rest. No, you will be saved. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So when you point to Jesus and say, I have no excuse, but I love him. God's response will be very well. Not your will, but my will be done unto you. In my will, I leave to my son. Jesus, what do you wanna do with this one? And Jesus will look to you and said, I called him, I called her out of the world. I love him, I love her, she's mine. I bought him, I paid for her, welcome home. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's the gospel. That's why we're here together gathered as a people. Every other reason we gather together is dependent on an appendage of the gospel. And what we want to do today then is to join all the other Christians and all the other saints throughout history in celebrating the fact that we have been redeemed by Jesus through his sacrifice on the cross and proclaimed his glorious resurrection over death three days later by celebrating communion or the Lord's Supper, a precious meal that he instituted to his disciples the night before his crucifixion in the upper room when he took two elements, bread and wine. He took the bread, he raised his hands, he appealed to heaven to bless it. He broke and he said, this is my body broken for you. Likewise, he took the cup, raised it to heaven, appealed to God to bless it and told the disciples, this is representative of my blood poured out for you. It's the cup of the new covenant. Old things have passed away. Behold, I'm making all things new and I'm starting in my death and resurrection. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to come and dine, to feast on salvation. A moment that we can ask the Holy Spirit to reveal in our hearts wicked desires, to confess misopportunities, our shortcomings, our flaws, our outright sins, and to know that by faith alone, Christ is taking care of them. And to celebrate that because Christ has taken care of it, we look forward in eager anticipation of his return in the future. For this reason, we ask that only those who have placed faith in the Lord Jesus come forward to dine at this table. If you have not, pay attention to who comes forward and ask them, why is it, why is it that the gospel saved you? How has the gospel saved you? How can Jesus save me? But for all people, I'd ask now we would take a moment of quiet reflection to ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts, confess sin, and when you are led to come forward and to dine in celebration with what Jesus has done for us. Father, we thank you so much for examples like Stephen, who full of power and wisdom in your Holy Spirit declared the gospel in a broken world. And even though he was opposed, we recognize that your will be done. But your truth still went forward as evidence today because we're still talking about him. 
Father, we thank you that you did not give up on us, that you did not cast us aside, but you prepared a way through your son for us to return home, for us to be redeemed, and for us to experience your love and life for all eternity. It's nothing we did. We confess right now, there isn't a single thing we can do or think or even desire that contributes to the perfect and full sacrifice of your son, which we receive by faith alone. We thank you that it is by your grace alone you have so chosen to give your son over to us for salvation, activated in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper as we come to dine and remember and to be reminded of your gospel. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.